Hello and welcome, I'm Alex and I'm Nikki and welcome to our podcast, Journals of a Journalist. So today we're going to be talking about the assassination of Chris Harney. I've never heard about him or his assassination since we started discussing the podcast, so... Let's, uh, this is all going to be new to you, huh? Yeah, it's going to be very new. Well, this is the thing. So much was going on in the early 90s in South Africa, and much of it was very, very important. But this was a very shocking event that happened, and it uh, had a lot of implications in that at that time we were in a state of flux. Nobody really knew what was happening. We were going through a time of tremendous social change. And nobody really knew what the future had in store. And I think the feeling was that at that stage, things must go quite slowly. But the most important outcome of the assassination of Chris Harney was that it made everybody realize there wasn't time to waste. We actually had to get on Very ominous. <laughs> Very ominous indeed. It was, it was a major event and it was a turning point for this country in so many ways. And... Like any violent death, it was very, very tragic. And there's some really nasty things that did happen around about that time. And so I will put in a disclaimer here that some of the things I'm going to describe can be quite disturbing. Chris Harney had been a member of the ANC, which was unbanned in 1990, and a number of political parties were being unbanned at that time. And Nelson Mandela was released in 1990 as well. And uh, there, there was a huge change afoot. And we also had a referendum in 1992 because the leaders of the time decided that the white people needed to, to be brought on board. So in 1992, there was a referendum. And it was very exciting because we were basically asked to give up power. The white people of the country were say, do you support the referendum which says that we are going to hand over power to the black majority? Okay. And the, the answer was yes. It was a resounding yes. But even so, people were very nervous. People didn't know what to expect. This had never, ever happened before. Yeah, yeah That definitely. a group of people who were in charge effectively said, we will allow ourselves to be voted out of power. That's never happened in the yeah, history of no. the whole world. It's, yeah, usually, yeah, yeah. it's usually a violent overthrow or revolution or whatever. So this was really, really uncharted territory. And it was a very exciting time as well because the government was talking to leaders in exile. People were being released from prison who were political prisoners. There were groups of businessmen going over to talk to the ANC in Lusaka. The Communist Party was unbanned. Uh, there was a feeling of anticipation in the air. There, there was this feeling that life is never, ever going to be the same again. And I was at the SABC at the time as a fairly junior reporter. And you had people coming to participate in talk shows, um, news talk shows. And these were people that we'd heard about. Uh, people like Oliver Tambo and Walter Sisulu and... Oliver Tambo. Okay. Tabo and Becky. Yes, yeah. he was still alive then. Yeah. And um, these were people who we had grown up thinking that these were the enemy. Yeah, definitely. These were the terrorists. And mm. to actually have them sitting at the SABC drinking tea and smoking a pipe 
and you look at this and you say, but this is just a person. Yeah, it's not the devil incarnate. <laughs> Um, so this was a time of tremendous change. And Chris Harney was a young leader. He was very, very popular amongst young people. He'd recently become the leader of the Communist Party. And unfortunately at that time as well, because of the Cold War and Russia and communism, which actually had a bad name in the rest of the world, because in the 50s and 60s, communism was the enemy and there was yeah. a war between uh, capitalism and communism. So for us, communism was bad news. And here was Chris Harney, who was the leader of the Communist Party. And this scared a lot of people. But anyway, the big thing about Chris Harney was that he was a moderate. And he said, we've got to abandon the arms struggle. Also at that time, by the way, there was a lot of terrorism going on. There were bombs going off. Yeah, there were yeah. assassinations, etc. Um, there was a lot of dirty tricks. There was a dirty tricks campaign being waged by the government. So things were very, very turbulent and unstable. And Chris Harney was a young guy. He was a, a militant, but he was very charismatic and he was very popular. He wasn't all that well known then. He was just really emerging from the shadows. But anyway, he was part of the negotiations. And this brings us to the weekend of the 10th of April, 1993, which was the Easter weekend. Yes. Now, I was on the news desk then. Historically, the Easter weekend, the big story for the Easter weekend is the number of people who get killed in car accidents. That is all, That has always yeah, been... Yeah, because it's, it's the end of summer, everyone's driving to the coast, they're drinking. Yes, so and that's it's holidays, the holidays. The holidays. So, and very little else goes on. So I was on the news desk on that Saturday morning, the 10th of April, and things were very, very quiet. There was nothing going on. People were on the holiday, and really and truly, the only real, real news stuff was, was who was being killed Car on the roads. Car accidents. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, because nothing was going on in the newsroom, I said to the news editor, really, there's nothing happening. Can I go shopping? And he said, yes, but take your pager with you. Now, in those okay. days, remember, we didn't have cell phones. Yeah. So when you left the office, you took your pager, and then if anything happened, the news editor could page you, and uh, it was like a it was like a prototype of SMS. You had a little oh, like a little a... square thing with a screen, and your message came up on a screen. You had to type it in on your side, and it would come up on your screen. Anyway, so I have certain letters meaning certain things. I'm guessing. Yes, it was something like that. There was a bit of shorthand, etc. But yeah, most yeah. of the time, it was really just a way for people to communicate long distance if you were away from your phone. Okay. So anyway, I took the beeper, the, the pager, and I went off to go shopping. And I parked the car, and I walked across the parking lot. And as I was about to enter the parking lot, I got the, my beeper went. And I looked down on the beeper, and it just said, Come back to the office, Chris Harney's been shot. And my heart okay. <laughs> absolutely Ew. dropped, because I knew just exactly how important this was um, yeah. when you're in the newsroom the general public might not have known very well who he was he was only really as i said emerging from the shadows yeah but if you were involved in the news at all you knew how important this man was and how influential it was so the fact that he'd been assassinated was a major major story anyway so i rushed back to the office and there was major panic going on nobody knew what to do everybody knew that this was a major event and if it wasn't handled properly there would be civil war there would be yeah, an uprising yeah. um, as we worked out and of course 
you want with a story like this you need to have pictures of this person you need to have information about this person yeah. but he had he'd been banned for most oh, of yeah, his life yeah, he was, yeah. so we had nothing all we really had was a photograph of him probably about 20 years old or whatever and very very little information so we were having to phone people and say what do you know what have you got can you come in so there was this tremendous feeling of panic in the newsroom what we managed to put together afterwards was that there was this Polish immigrant who had recently come to South Africa. He had lived under communism in Poland. Okay. And he was terrified of communism. And so because yeah, that's Prasani, probably why he came to South Africa. That is why escape, he came. Yeah. He, exactly. He came to South Africa to escape communism. And here there was the leader of the Communist Party who was rising in influence. And while I'm not for one minute excusing what he did... Yeah. He did say that he was terrified of communism and he wanted to kill the leader of the Communist Party. The, oh, irony, was, the mm. irony was, yes, that Chris Harney was not only a really nice man and an influential man, but he was also a peacemaker. Yeah. And he it was the very, very worst person to be shot. But anyway, what happened, which we all uncovered later, Chris Harney had just arrived back from buying the newspaper. He'd been out for a run. He pulled up in his car, he climbed out of the car. The assassin, Janusz Walusz, he pulled up behind him. He climbed out of his car. He walked up to Chris Hani, who was busy walking towards his front door, and he called him by name. And as Chris Hani turned around, he shot him three times. And then he walked back to his car and he drove off. That's chilling. That's like from a movie. <laughs> it is very chilling. Oh. Chris Hani's daughter heard the shots, came out and found her father oh, bleeding shame. to death. Which was That's horrible, yeah. Enormously traumatic for her. So traumatic. And the neighbor heard the shots and came running out and was comforting her. But the neighbor on the other side saw the car driving away and wrote down the registration Oof. number. Lucky, okay. So they, were thinking, yeah. so they were able to nab him within hours. They knew sure. exactly who it was. But you can, you can understand the anger and the chaos and, and the, the chaos that erupted because here, here was a black man who stood for the new order who'd been shot by a white man. And the main fear was that this would blow up into civil war and a race yeah. war and that black people would attack white people and white people would attack black people. So that evening, I mean, the, the left wing were now saying, the whites can't be trusted, they'll shoot us dead, we now have to resume the armed struggle, we have to rise up against the white people, and the white people were saying, well, bring it on, we're armed, we're trained, we'll meet you in the streets. So there was all this war talk going on, and for several hours, we were all in a state of absolute fear. We had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. And that evening, it was decided that Nelson Mandela must go onto television live, and he must address the nation. This was not a time for a white man to say anything. And Nelson Mandela made a speech, which was probably one of the most important in his life, where he said that, yes, a white man had shot the black man, but it was a white woman who had written down the registration number, uh, which got the assassination oh, okay, arrested. Okay. It wasn't a case of all white people are bad. But what was Nelson Mandela's role at this time in history? Well, he was the leader of the ANC. Okay. He wasn't the president or anything. No, no, he was not, just yet, the, not yet. But it was acknowledged that he was the right person. Okay. So even though he wasn't 
any formal leader. I mean, he was the leader of the ANC, but he didn't have a role in government. Yeah. But he was regarded as presidential. And in fact, the speech he gave was regarded as presidential. And if anything, it was a, a good arbiter of what was going to come because here you had a man who had exactly the right temperament to calm everything down, to say the right thing. And even though there hadn't been an election and he was the leader of a so-called resistance movement, yeah. he was almost given the mantle of president there and then because okay. people acknowledged that he was the one man in the country who could calm things down. And uh, people trusted him. And people trusted yeah. him and they believed him and he, he was able to say the right thing. That was the important one. The comment he made that it might have been a white man who shot a black man, but it was a white woman who got the assassin arrested. Um, Those were probably the most important words that have ever been said in this country. Mm, definitely. Because it really, it uh, definitely did. Definitely for that time, definitely. A race war, yes. But then the week happened, and that entire week, I must be honest, we lived in a dream. It was like nothing was real. Church leaders were being called in, community leaders were being called in. All the airwaves were, talk of, were, were full of leaders talking about how important it was to stay calm. There were church services, there were community meetings, there were riots breaking out everywhere. And the, the big consensus was that we can't talk anymore. The ANC has been unbanned, there have to be elections, we have to decide on a date now. The yeah. only thing that will keep the country, keep the lid on the country, is to declare the elections. So that's what happened. Now, nine days later was the time for the funeral, the memorial services, and I decided I wanted to cover this because I'd sort of been... In the front. <laughs> being right, right in the beginning yeah. is when it all broke. So I wanted to cover this. I booked a cameraman and a sound man, and it was felt that it's not a good idea for white people to be too obvious at the funeral. Yeah, definitely. So I had a black cameraman and a black black sound man, and the, there was a big service at the F&B Stadium, which is bordering Soweto. And it was very close to a, a sort of a working class white suburb called Crown Mines. Okay. And we went there and we didn't go into the stadium because we didn't feel it would, would be a good idea for yeah, us to go into the place. stadium. No, it's not my place. So we kind of hung around outside trying to talk to people. And uh, But people were very antagonistic. They did not want to talk to us. In fact, they were very rude to us. And there were gangs of young people walking around setting fire to things. The stadium was on one side, and then there was a huge patch of grass, which could have been a soccer field or whatever. And then about 500 meters away, there was this row of houses. Okay, but you mentioned the stadium was bordering Soweto. So Soweto was kind of, it was a apartheid... It was a township. Township it was the during this time. Yes, it was the yeah. township. So It was, it was a, in exiting apartheid township. What does that mean? It was, it's not holding black people in that area, but it used to. It used to, yes. Yeah. It, it used to be, it, it was called, Soweto stands for Southwestern Township. Yeah. Soweto, and that was the largest dormitory township to Johannesburg. That's where all the... The, the mine laborers went to go and live and okay. it was it was huge and so yeah. the the stadium was in Johannesburg but it was very close to Soweto for, for access so that people could come okay as I said about 500 meters away there was this line of houses and we saw there was activity around the houses so we kind of sauntered over there to see what was going on and the interesting thing was that 
researching the funeral, there is no mention of the fact that the people in the houses were attacked and killed and the houses were set on fire. And there were some really disturbing images. Um, somebody had killed a dog and hung it up in a tree and built a fire under it. So there was this Jeez. blackened corpse of a dog hanging from a tree and, and turning in the breeze. Scary. And um, there were houses on fire. And I, I remember seeing the houses burning and thinking, I hope there weren't people inside. And apparently, yes, there were people inside. Yeah, no. People were, the, the mobs were so angry. And the worst thing that these people did was that they lived near to the stadium. But mobs somehow yeah, hey. had just attacked the houses, killed the people who lived there, killed the animals and set the place on fire. And amazingly enough, I never saw anything about that anywhere. I've never seen it reported in any newspaper, whatever. We don't know how many people died. Um, we don't know what happened there. But maybe, maybe there's been a passing mention of the fact that this river of houses, there must have been about four or five houses in that little street, and they were killed. But anyway, we were treated with enormous hostility, and there were soldiers everywhere. We could hear the voices and the singing and the loudspeakers from inside, but people were very, very antagonistic towards us. And my black cameraman and my black sound man who were getting some shots, they kept saying to me that it might be, I might be better off if I sat in the car. But I wanted to walk around. You want to be in the... <laughs> I wanted to be in the thick of things, but yeah. I did realize that, you know, even if I wasn't being overtly attacked, people were not interested in talking to me. There yeah, was they tremendous were angry hostility. At you. And then when the service was over, the people started streaming out and they were starting to get into buses and cars because now they were going to the cemetery. Crowds of people were coming past me and when they saw me, they started chanting one settler, one bullet and making <laughs> signs towards me that they wanted, you know, cutting my throat, etc. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe discretion is the better part of valor. Yeah, definitely. So I climbed in the car and I sat in the car and tried to look as unobtrusive as possible. And the cameraman and the sound man, they got in the car and they started to drive out. But there were people filling the roads and they were banging on the roof and saying, you know, get out of the way, get out of the way. And I kept saying, no, 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 don't call attention to us. Don't make these people <laughs> angry at all. Um, yeah. So I was trying to be as unobtrusive as possible. And uh, whenever people saw me in the car, they'd bang on the roof of the car and they'd shout, one settler, one bullet. So I was getting a bit nervous. Then we got on the road to the cemetery and on the road, there were soldiers in a line down each side of the road. And they had their arms linked. And the road was full of people walking from the stadium to the cemetery. Yeah. And the reason why the soldiers were there, I realized, was to prevent people from going off the road and attacking the businesses. Because there were businesses and shops on either side of the road. And so the soldiers were there, um, even though the shops and businesses were all closed... The feeling was that the mood that the people were in, they were likely to go and throw stones through windows or set the businesses on fire. At one stage, we decided to park and just get shots of the people walking past us and the crowds of pedestrians. And I, could, I was standing quite close to the line of soldiers, and it struck me just how young some of them were. Yeah. I mean, some of them looked like they were in their teens. There were people going up to them and shouting at them. And there was one young girl. She went up to a soldier and she spat in his face. And he just stood there and he looked at her. And she was shouting at him. She was yelling in his face how much she hated him. And he was just standing there. And I could see a muscle jumping in his cheek while the spit dripped off his chin. And I thought, I don't know, I don't know how he manages to not react. Yeah, just dissociate, you know. 
Scary. Yes, and, and she was yelling in his face. And when she saw that he wasn't going to retaliate in any way, she moved off. But I've never stopped thinking about that soldier because I'm pretty certain that those guys must have gone through a lot of trauma. Yeah, they've been through everything. Yeah. The but anyway, worst. So then we climbed back in the car and we drove off to the cemetery and we parked and we walked up to the graveside. But there were people milling around and it was impossible to see anything. There was a huge crush of people around the grave and the the ceremony at the graveside was being recorded. It was going to be broadcast live on camera. So obviously the camera crews had got up there early and they'd set up. And in order to be able to see the grave over the heads of the people, they'd set up gantries. So there were gantries and cranes and there were platforms on top of the gantries. And they had cameras set up there and the crew was standing up there and they were shooting down onto the graveside um, sure. because it was being broadcast. And of course, me being right at the back and obviously not being allowed near the front, mm, I couldn't see a thing. So I decided that the best thing for me to do is to hop up on one of the gantries and, and, and get up a little way above the crowd and then I'd be able to look down on the graveside. And that's what I did. So I jumped up and just above me was the camera, the, the, the platform that had the camera on it. But there I could look over the heads of the people and I could look down on the grave. So there I was. I had my foot wedged in the one, the angle between the gantry and the metal arm that held the platform. And I was hanging on. I had my mm -hmm. arms around the pole for dear what life. What a sight. <laughs> and I was watching the proceedings. And of course all the people were below me, a few inches below me anyway. So then as the coffin started being and the, by the way the noise was tremendous because people were shouting people were singing there were speeches going on there was music being played there was a loudspeaker etc so there was tremendous noise yeah and then as i was watching the coffin started being lowered into the grave and a man standing just underneath me in a brown suit he took his hat off his head and he took a gun out from his coat oh. and he bowed his head and he held his arm up in the air and he started shooting in the air and I was standing right above him and there I was and I couldn't hear or see a thing but I just saw this gun and I could see that he was firing and I was screaming at him look up I'm here stop stop shooting Yo. because if he's if he relaxed his arm and the gun moved it was very likely he was going to shoot hit you, yeah. yes so I was trying by hanging on to the pole trying to stretch my leg out to try and nudge him with my foot to say, hang on, I'm up here, stop, stop firing. And eventually, I managed to touch his hand with my foot, and he looked up, and immediately he saw me. He put the, oh, he says, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And he put the gun away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, is that all you could say? But by then, I was so shaken, so I jumped down, and my legs were shaking so much that I actually needed to hold on to the gantry to stay upright. And while I was standing there, but really I was completely equivalent. Yeah, jeez. The sound engineer, a guy I know called Charles, he came sauntering over, been standing nearby, he saw the whole thing, he came sauntering over with a big grin on his face and he said, that was nearly tickets for you, wasn't it? <laughs> and then uh, he grinned and he walked off. And this is one of those really frustrating occasions when I could not think of a thing, single thing to say. Yeah, you just said. Uh... But anyway, by that stage, I'd now had enough of this. Uh, we had our footage, so I uh, told my camera crew that we must pack up. They'd been getting footage of the mourners around the grave. 
and we jumped back in the car and I needed to get back to the SABC to cut the story because it was going to go out the following morning and so I needed to script it and cut it and we worked right through the night yeah as you would in order to get it done um, it was ready the following morning just before broadcast so I delivered it and I stayed awake just long enough to watch the item being broadcast and then I went home to sleep yeah it took me a while to get to sleep because every time I closed my eyes, I had these images of the burning houses and the people yeah, marching and the screaming scary. and 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 uh, yes, and it it was very it was all noise and confusion and flames and hate and everything. Yeah, and you can't just, get over that. Just as I drifted off to sleep, there was suddenly this huge explosion, yeah. and the house shook, and I was I jolted awake and I thought. And I had this vision of these crowds descending on the house with with, yeah. with, with burning brands and things and mobs in and the mobs, street and yeah. so on. And so I quietly went into the house and it was dead quiet. But I could hear a trip, trip, trip. And I thought, what is this? And I went into the kitchen and it was a bottle of ginger beer that had exploded oh, in my no. cupboard. <laughs> uh, that's very anticlimactic. <laughs> very anticlimactic. But I could not get back to sleep after that. And uh, so eventually I just had a shower and went into work. So that was the very anticlimactic end of my coverage of the Chris Hanley funeral. And the legacy of it was that it was a real pity because... That's yeah, very sad. It's very sad. He, to all, by all accounts, he was a really, really nice man. And he was exactly the kind of leader that this country needed at that time. Yeah, definitely. And for him to die young and so tragically... And so unnecessarily was a yeah. huge tragedy. But at the same time, it did give a huge acceleration to the process. Yes, yeah. Because I think there was quite a bit of paralysis in the... Nobody really knew where to go from how here. How to start, yeah. How to but get in there. But his death precipitated the fact that, no, things really do have to change. And the outcome of the Chris Harney assassination was that the date for the election was set... The rest is history, as they say. South Africa became what it is today, almost. <laughs> a democracy. A democracy. Well, that was um, quite a story. Thanks for telling it. <laughs> it was very intense. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time for the next episode. You were listening to Journals of a Journalist. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Journals of a Journalist. Send us an email, journalsofajournalist at gmail.com. And we hope you enjoy and we'll see you for the next episode. Bye. Bye.